Today I'd like to talk to you about um, impermanence and emptiness. And um, hopefully I won't get you too lost. Um, A while back, I decided to go parachuting with a friend. And it happens every now and then that I uh, like to take a very big risk with my life like that. Because I tend to walk away with it with sort of... um, a new lease on uh, life, a new um, freshness and appreciation that I live through something like that. Um, I don't take my life uh, for granted. But to make sure I actually live through it, I I, <laughs> <laughs> I went to a, a program where they um, they strap somebody on your back who knows what they're doing, <laughs> and um, they do all the work of pulling the cord and getting you down safe. So um, I try to tip the scales in my favor. As I was driving out there, <clears throat> um, uh, I was going with a friend and she started getting really, really nervous. And I was cool, calm. It's like, oh yeah, I'm a meditator. <laughs> I know how to face these sort of things. And then I realized I was just very deep in denial. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm just looking at the blue sky, just going for a drive, very in the moment, very in the moment. We're about to go parachuting. Oh, that's terrifying. Okay, stay in the moment. Stay in the moment. She's like, we're about to go parachuting. We're about to parachute. Stay in the moment. Stay in the moment. And then we got closer and closer and we could see the uh, the planes taking off and a few people parachuting. And I was like, seeing, seeing, seeing. <laughs> and I started like, well, I came here for the terror of it. I mean, I might as well like really go for the ride. And so I tried to like take the denial off. But it was very hard to um, to really get in the um, the feeling of what I was about to do. But <clears throat> it kept creeping in in ways I couldn't deny. Like when I actually saw people parachuting, I was like, oh yeah, that will be me. And so we got in and they, they make you watch this safety video. And it's just like, you could die this way, you could be hurt this way. <laughs> just so you know. And like again, trying to pull off the denial of what you're about to do. And we got suited up. And um, we got in the plane, <clears throat> and as soon as we closed the door, I realized I'm not coming down in this plane. <laughs> I've been in planes many times; that's not scary. But what's scary is that this plane's going to land, and I won't be in it. And <clears throat> I'm going to be land. I'm going to land, but I won't be in a plane. And so that's <clears throat> that's sort of again where the um, the sense of terror started creeping in. <clears throat> and it's exactly what I asked for, but it was still kind of terrifying and got the adrenaline going. <clears throat> so I started uh, going up the plane and um, it's spiraling up. And yeah, it wasn't so bad. I've been in planes before, like I said, it was a small plane. And I could kind of just keep breathing. <laughs> and then it got to the point where he strapped himself on my back, and that was new. I hadn't had somebody strapped to my back in a plane before. And they opened the door. And we start um, scrunching our way towards the door with this guy strapped on my back in a small plane. So we get to the door, and I'm ready. I'm just ready to whatever, kiss the dragon or <laughs> explode into infinity or whatever was going to happen to me as I went through this terrifying experience. <clears throat> and um, 
So he had me like hold on so I wouldn't grab him <laughs> out of terror, and I kind of made. <clears throat> and this beautiful point where we fell, and we fell out of the plane, and I was ready for the terror to just be overwhelming, and I kind of psyched myself up to run that much terror through this body and mind, and we fell. And I fell into a great sense of peace and serenity and relaxation. And I was disoriented. I didn't quite get it. So we were falling and falling and falling. And I started like coming to. And um, I realized it was just a very beautiful thing to do. I mean, I'm just floating. I can't tell that I'm floating at 200 miles an hour. <laughs> But I'm floating, and I can see very far. I can see the um, the way over into the Central Valley and um, up north, and see the Oakland Hills from the other side. And I realized, <clears throat> you know, I just put myself um, in the hands of this stranger, but he knows what he's doing, and that was very kind of relaxing. And you're on a cushion of air; you can see forever. And I was just startled that it was that peaceful. You know, the sound of the wind rushing by, but um, besides that, it was just a beautiful opportunity to um, relax, like being in a hot tub without the water, <laughs> or the tub, <laughs> or the deck, or anything around you, but the same sense of relaxation. And so we're sort of falling through the air, and <clears throat> then the ground starts getting closer, and you can start to see, oh yeah, there's a transition coming up. And that's, again, kind of terrifying. And you think, okay, that's going to be kind of weird. But, um, you know, just doing, pulled the cord, and we came in and uh, landed. And I was just so thrilled. I mean, my body was just alive. And um, it had been thrilling and calming and reassuring at the same time um, to have done that. My friend landed, and... um, we were pretty ecstatic for the rest of the day. And I've been reflecting on that as a metaphor, um, why that was so uh, peaceful when it should have been terrifying. And I realized that it's a bit like what it's like to be on maybe a long retreat, on a three-month retreat or longer, where you really can sink into an Icha where you really can just sink into the flow of experience that nothing lasts and you're just passing through it and savoring it. Whether it's unpleasant or pleasant, you actually begin to savor the unpleasant because it's just not going to last. And the more you can actually flow through time, the more kind of exciting it is and the more reassuring it is. There's not so much to wrestle with when you can open up to the impermanence of things. You can deal with them as they arise, but you don't have to um, to manage them so hard. You can free flow, free fall through time more. I also realized that <clears throat> there was a point where I was possibly um, two miles from anything that could actually hurt me. And in my normally daily life, that's just not the case. I mean, there's many ways to bump into things um, there's sharp knives and forks that you could accidentally stab yourself with or driving in a car you're very close to um, to a painful situation it could just take a second a blown tire or a car accident but when I was really falling through the air 
and fully committed to falling through the air like that. Um, I was surrounded by air. You know, I was surrounded by nothing that could actually um, uh, hurt me in any way. And so there's that transition point where uh, there was possible, possibly uh, going to be something like a hard impact. But um, the guys with knew how to manage that transition well. And so that's another thing about um, living into anicca, living into impermanence. Um, anicca is the word we often translate as impermanence. <clears throat> that there actually are fewer things that can harm you. And the things that can actually harm you, you can um, relate to them uh, in a more appropriate and skillful way. Um, so that's some of what I wanted to uh, unpack today is this word anicca, which gets translated as impermanence. And how at first it's bad news, at first it's kind of terrifying. <clears throat> and the, the cost of living uh, sounds a little fuzzy. Um, the cost of living, of transitioning into Nietzsche is terrifying. When you live in a solid, permanent, predictable world and you take the, the stage dive or the parachute leap into radical Nietzsche where you're just free falling through time, um, that is terrifying, that transition. But you, you end up gaining a greater sense of, um, of peace when you can actually align yourself with Anicca. And it, it's funny how Anicca um, or impermanence gets a bit of a bad rap or our minds relate to it often as a sense of loss or a sense of um, uh, that, we, that things don't last long is a built-in insecurity. But when you can live into that field of Anisha, that insecurity kind of evaporates and actually becomes a great resource. <clears throat> um, I was thinking about why we, um, if we know the truth of impermanence, and we all do, at some point we kind of get the, that nothing's meant to last, and that can go very radically deep in the fact that thoughts come and go, body sensations come and go, that there's really radical change happening all the time. Why do we um, know that and not really live in accord with it? <clears throat> and I studied um, physics in college, and so another metaphor that's been really helpful for me is thinking about um, the switch between classical mechanics and quantum mechanics. And the classical mechanics is um, all the way back to Aristotle, um, and even before him, it's sort of the um, the obvious physics, where things do exist. I mean, this is solid; you can count on it. I can put my weight on it. <coughs> And you can go very far in your relationship to the world in assuming that things are permanent and that they last and you can count on them. Um, a harder transition is thinking about the world in terms of quantum mechanics. And I'll try to give an example that might help for those of you who didn't study quantum mechanics. Um, take a diamond, for example. You can have this big, chunky diamond, one of the hardest substances 
um, beautiful, solid, diamonds are forever. <clears throat> and you begin looking at it very closely. And it's a bit like um, looking into your mind. At first, when we first sit down, sit down in meditation, we have the same types of thoughts that we normally have in our daily life. We sit down, our minds are still working on this level where what we're thinking is very true to us. Um, I should have washed the dishes before I left home. Uh, it's a beautiful sunny day, I want to go for a walk. We're kind of organizing our daily life, very solid, true on this level. Then you go into the diamond and you can go very, fairly deep into it. If you keep on sort of magnifying it, you just find more diamond. It's just sort of smaller and smaller pieces. It's very solid. It's made of very solid bits. And you go more and more and more. And the same into our thoughts. Very solid. You know, like, my mom, boy, what a bear she is. Or <laughs> what a you know, beautiful person she is. And she can be both. But often my mind will kind of choose one or the other and make it very solid. If I'm fighting with her, she's tough and always kind of angry. and rah, rah, rah. Um, Or when she's kind and it's like, ah, oh, she's so beautiful. I'm so lucky to have a mother like this. I usually tend to take one of those and make it very solid and relate to that. It's very hard to hold both of those to be true because they both seem so solid. How could they both be true? So we take one. <clears throat> we go very deep into that particular uh, train of thought. It's like going into the diamond. And then when you actually get into the building blocks of a diamond, you have to go, really, you have to go all the way down to the atomic level. You go down and all of a sudden, um, the diamond turns into Swiss cheese. There are all these holes and spaces between the atoms. And it's this sort of radical shift. When you get down to the actual building blocks, all the space starts appearing. There's an atom and an atom, but you can sort of see there's space in between it. <clears throat> Something as hard as a diamond, as solid as a diamond, as forever as a diamond, has space within it, between the building blocks. Same thing happens in meditation. When you really begin to kind of not live in a realm of the solidness of thought, but say, not now, back to the breath, not now, back to the breath. And you get into the breath, and the breath is a nice kind of changing, flowy feel of sensations. So your mind is already attuning to this changing nature of existence, of experience. You begin softening that, um, that insistent interpretation that things are solid you get into something a little bit more fluid. The thoughts themselves stop arising so densely and we stop relating to them as dense. And they can start to be a little bit more spacious. Space can arise within a thought. Um, for example, um, I'm having <clears throat> a growth opportunity with one of my housemates. <laughs> so we're arguing. And, um, <laughs> and in the actual argument, very dense. It's a very dense experience. It's very unpleasant and I want out of it. It's so unpleasant and out of it means winning or succumbing and I don't want either one of those. Um, but it's dense. And so I sit here in meditation and of course my mind will kind of leave the breath go into this dense thought. And then maybe 10 minutes later, same thought arises, unpleasant, but it's, it's softened a little bit. It's got a little more moisture to it. There's a little more space around it. And I've seen over time that the more I do this, these thoughts can, I can say, oh yeah, this is just thoughts. This is a thought storm happening. The space can arise. And you can get into the very arising of a thought. Um, 
not so much in, maybe in daily practice we can do this, um, get, see a thought arise and pass away. It's like looking at the atom of a diamond and starting to see the space around it. Even more radically is when you go into the actual carbon atom of a diamond <clears throat> and there it explodes into almost nothing but space. If you, this is some of the, the revolution in quantum mechanics, um, that up until quantum mechanics, a, a carbon atom would be like a billiard ball. It's just absolutely solid. You could hit it with another billion ball and they, a billiard ball and they would bounce off each other and very solid, very reliable. Um, atomic structure <clears throat> reveals that most of an atom is actually just space. If you had a 14 story tall building and you put um, a grain of uh, salt on the roof and on the ground uh, floor and you put something like a, um, a millet kernel on the seventh floor that millet kernel would be about what the protons would be. Now that's seven stories of space um, all up to that grain of salt on the roof or on the ground floor. That's how much space is within an atom. <clears throat> that's how much space is actually within a thought. By the time I have a thought, why is my mother always so angry? Like that's a... <sighs> It's a very heavy, dense thought. I have a lot of experience behind that thought. Um, and she's not, I don't know, okay, I need to, in case my mother ever hears this, or you ever meet her, very lovely woman. Very, very lovely, pleasant woman. Uh, most people love her. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I love her very deeply. Um, <clears throat> but we've had some good arguments, and they had, they had been like billiard balls sometimes. And so why is somebody's mother this always this angry? Um, <clears throat> that's many little thought particles together. Like mother already is, um, I've, I've collapsed her identity. She's many things, but to me, I've collapsed her into this identity, this, this sort of tight thought web. And this is all she is. Wherever she goes, she's my mother. So everybody she meets, she, that's my mother meeting that person. I don't really have an expanded view that she's more than that. Um, so that's already, that could be expanded. Always so angry. Okay, she's not always so angry. In fact, she's barely that angry. Um, so that could be expanded. And then the anger is really not even just anger. She gets frustrated and she's, you know, trying to problem solve her way. and. So all of these kind of dense, hard thoughts um, behind this one thought, um, they begin to expand and space can arise within them. And it's the same like going into that carbon atom. <clears throat> and then you go even further and you start looking at the electrons and the protons that make up the atom. They don't even exist. Like they aren't even existing. Like even my the little thoughts making up the big thought, they don't even exist. They're just kind of popping, crackling potential. You can't even grab them. Um, or for a moment you could grab them, but they're, they're gone. So even that, they're so insubstantial. So you're taking this diamond, diamonds are forever, diamonds are hard, down, 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 and you start finding space, <clears throat> and then you go into the actual building blocks, boom, lots of space. Go into the actual building blocks of the protons, electrons, and bam, they're just gone. 
they're so ephemeral but <clears throat> they are not completely insubstantial they do behave in certain ways that give the impression of being more solid and that's where I think um, that that those two lines um, form is emptiness and emptiness is form <clears throat> matter is completely insubstantial but it doesn't it doesn't uh, it doesn't um, behave randomly it follows certain laws and those laws of how insubstantial it is gives the impression of it being more solid and permanent and that creates a very um, it creates the topography of our material world. You know, this is insubstantial, um, and yet, I mean, at its very, very core, it is, and yet it, it behaves in such a way that it seems substantial. Um, Joseph Goldstein likes to give the example: um, if you're at if you're at a bonfire at a beach at night, and you grab a stick and it has a hot glowing end, and you spin it around really fast you'll see a solid circle. You know, you'll see this red circle glowing. And yet there isn't really a red circle there. It's just, it appears like there is. So these electrons, protons, appear as if they're solid. <clears throat> and then with quantum, if you're willing to go all the way into the insubstantial nature and you start building back up, you recover all that's true in classical mechanics. And so if you go down into the mind and realize how insubstantial it is, the thoughts are and our perceptions, they're just fleeting um, energy coalesced into um, these little tiny interpretations and they build. You then get the entire world back. You know how to drive a car, you know, your friends are still your friends. Um, it's still, you know, sunsets are beautiful. You actually recover everything that you might have lost by going all the way down into how insubstantial things are. But you can relate to it on a, a truer foundation. And it's the same in the mind where <clears throat> you can take all these solid thoughts that, we, that we're imprisoned by do your walking meditation and sitting meditation and begin to get space around them, space within them, see their ephemeral nature. And then you leave your formal practice and you go to do whatever you want to do and you come back into this more relative realm and things still make sense as they had before. It's just you're not imprisoned by them and you're not misrelating to them as if they were the solid true level um, you can have you can bring that space back into it, that relationship of space, back into something as hard as a diamond, or back into something as uh, hard as your relationships to your parents or children or your the people you're living with. This was most um, uh, uh, apparent to me when I um, I've been pestering my father to sit a meditation retreat with me. For a long time, it was a dream. I never retreat. Oh, if only my family would sit with me, that would be great. 
And <clears throat> so I was pestering, 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 and finally he said he would do it. And I was like, oh my God, what was I thinking? <laughs> I was, now I'm responsible for this. I'm like, oh. <laughs> you know, what if he actually doesn't like it? Or what if he goes crazy? What if I go crazy? Yeah. <laughs> and um, so, and he sat right next to me for this 12-day retreat. And, you know, at every every Dharma talk or instruction. Did he understand that? I hope he got it. <laughs> like anxiety, right? And I had to let it go, I had to let it go. And so about halfway through that retreat, you know, there was the the intent of the practice is to soften and expand all these thoughts and see how insubstantial they are, whether you like it or not. And so we kinda like it, but then it started impacting my relationship to my father. And he started kind of eroding next to me. Like, my father, 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 what does that mean? That's, and I started seeing as a collection of thoughts and how insubstantial I was like, oh my God, I've lost this pillar in my life, this solid relationship. It's not solid. I can't count on that anymore. What is that? I don't even know what that means. And who is he? Like, I have these, I've mapped him out. You know, we can spend a month together and I don't have to learn anything new about him because I, I mapped him out and so we can just enjoy ourselves and not get into any unknown territory because we've mapped each other out and that's very comforting. And I started losing the maps of him. I started losing the, the ways I had bound him, the ways I had related to him and the patterns. I started seeing it as just patterns. I mean, he's lived longer than I have and I don't know anything about that life, really. I know stories about it, but as I know stories about my own life, I can extrapolate that, like, wow, there's so much about him, I can't even begin to fathom. And I realized this person who I might have known the best in my life, I knew very little about. That was, and that was like a, um, an earthquake, sort of going through my psyche. And <clears throat> it was horrifying at first. It was horrifying to go from something as predictable, as trustworthy as um, my father. Um, and the retreat sort of went on and on. I kept seeing him walking around and realizing, oh my God, this person's a stranger. An absolute stranger. I know nothing about him. What, what I know about him would just fit in a, in a tiny little thimble. And, um, and so I was feeling some kind of like loss, like, oh, I wish I had asked him all these questions when I could have. <laughs> I started framing it in the past, I don't know why. But, um, and then the retreat ended and I was just at a loss. Like, what was I going to say to this perfect stranger <laughs> that I had no idea who they were? And um, and we started talking, and he told a joke, just like he always does. And it was funny, just like it always is. And I laughed, just like I always do. And all of a sudden, I started getting him back. But I got him back with this incredible sense uh, spaciousness. Like, who are you? You're so funny. I enjoy your company. You're kind of weird. You're, you know, I don't know much about you. And so we spent a week afterwards um, driving around and camping together. And it was, it was so beautiful to not have these dense boundaries and maps uh, arranged of each other because we could just play with them. 
Like, what's it like to have been my father? Wow, that's a weird question. You know, it's like first it was kind of thrilling, and it got kind of scary, and then it got kind of like you know, mundane. Then you did this, and then you did that, and he was so free in his ability to talk about me because suddenly I had expanded. I mean, he had seen me all the way from birth to my age, and so he wanted to know who I was. Who was this stranger pointing to me, and who was that stranger? And yet we weren't that strange. We knew how to relate to each other. And there was all this space. <clears throat> this is where the um, the anicca, the sort of impermanence and emptiness, at first is a great loss. It's a great loss of predictability. It's a great loss of solidity. Um, and then at that point of loss, when you're really into insubstantiality and therefore sort of the emptiness, that nothing really has solid existence that you can trust. Um, you go down to that level, and then you start building back on a truer foundation. It's like um, stacking pennies, if you've ever done that with kids, or if you still do it. <laughs> um, if your first couple of pennies aren't well stacked, no matter how careful you are on the top ones, it's a very wobbly structure. And if you're willing to go all the way down to the foundation, and get those first couple of pennies really well uh, oriented, you can carefully stack a much higher column. So going all the way down to the foundation um, of impermanence and emptiness with my father, and then being able to build back up, um, has allowed us to know each other much deeper. And then to extrapolate, to do this with everybody, so you see it with one person, and then how well do any of you know anybody here? I mean, you're in a sangha, you see each other weekly, uh, monthly, and maybe you came with people that you know really well. How well do you really know them? And all that you could possibly write down if you wrote books of what you already know would just be the sort of the most surface level. There's so much more going on in any one of us than we could map out. So not to fall for the map. The map is great. I have a map of San Francisco in my car because every now and then I need it to get some orientation. But I don't want to like just stare at the map, right? I want to actually like experience the city. That's the same with all of us. You know, you, you open back up into this impermanence and emptiness and then use the maps that you have to begin exploring the mystery of your own life, of who you are even, and then the people around you. So you get this beautiful gift back. And this, um, these two characteristics of uh, Nietzsche and uh, impermanence or this emptiness, which goes into kind of the selflessness, um, are two of three characteristics. And the third is this um, dukkha aspect. <clears throat> and all three at first taste sour. Um, impermanence, uh, emptiness, uh, and then suffering. Well, that, you know, it's suffering, so that's, all, that's always kind of sour. But even dukkha is just that when you're misaligned with things as they really are, you will find it dissatisfying. It, you cannot find satisfaction if you, uh, if you take things for permanent and you uh, insist on relating to the world in a static, solid self sort of way. Dukkha is also very liberating because where you're misaligned, it, it, it's frustrating. 
And that frustration is a place where you can go down and actually find where you're misaligned, become better aligned, and then you start getting uh, the beautiful rewards of being awake in this way. And so even dukkha is, can be beautiful when followed through, when actually followed through not just on the first taste of it, the first taste of suffering, the first taste of impermanence, the first taste of emptiness is loss and unpleasant, but they all, when explored, um, liberate. And that liberation ends up being quite beautiful. And then what you get, you get all that was ever good. The chocolate chip cookie actually tastes better because you know it won't last. So you pay a little more attention to it and you get sweeter experiences out of it. You just don't expect that that cookie is going to solve your depression. <laughs> so it's not disappointing. <laughs> you know, it just does what it can do. And that's great. Um, so you appreciate it. And you appreciate your friends for what they can do and who they actually are and the mysteries that are there. And they're not, they're not dissatisfying. They can actually be quite satisfying when you can have right relationship to them. The Four Noble Truths of the, of the Buddha begin with uh, insight into dukkha, but there, it was built on such uh, a strong societal exploration of impermanence that was already the, the spiritual backdrop, um, was looking at impermanence. So it's really like this is the, it's the zero noble truth. It's the one before the first. It's sort of the, the ground of looking at impermanence. Um, and impermanence so quickly reveals emptiness. And when you have um, that noble truth, uh, then as you work into the noble truth of suffering, of how we um, try to make permanent and try to um, bind reality into solid structures um, and uh, relate to things with solid existence, um, then we can uh, propel a lot of our dissatisfaction, a lot of our suffering. I think that's probably what uh, it probably wraps it. We have a few uh, minutes for questions if any come up or any um, experiences you've had um, around those two. The, the, the front end of that was unpleasant about impermanence or emptiness. Um, if you've explored that through to find the, the sweet, liberating side of those. Yeah. Yeah, we're going to try to pass the mic around. Yes, sir. The creaking you hear is footsteps. <laughs> Receiving the mic. Uh, you spoke about when you were with your father in that retreat and then your map came apart or whatever. Did you form a new map with a better perspective? Yes. And that's, <clears throat> we have to understand that that's how the mind works. Um, if your mind didn't make maps, you'd be... Um, you'd be suffering from insanity. So 
it's very important that our minds know how to make maps. But we need we need dynamic maps, ones that um, allow for change, um, and ones that don't. And we need to relate to the maps with with wisdom, which is a map unto itself, a dynamic map unto itself. That the map isn't the terrain. So um, we update our maps um, and we relate to them with uh, an open hand. Thanks. I'd like to explore the roommate and the entrenched nature of this argument. Have you had success in the middle of this argument of investing the kind of seven stories of quantum space (laughs) (laughs) or alternatively the appreciation, the passing moment of of the chocolate chip cookie, mm. the, the not lasting nature. And if you have had success with either or both, can you um, give us the map of that experience? Yeah. One, one time on a, um, a three-month retreat, there was a dog, neighbor, uh, dog from an, a neighbor that came and was walking around, and it has a little bell on it. <clears throat> and so there are 100 people sitting there, um, and most of them were frustrated by this little bell walking around the outside, but not everybody. Um, and what I realized is that I hated that dog <laughs> when my mind was contracted. And I actually loved that dog and that bell when my mind was open. And that was the first time I saw it in action. And because I saw in action all the thoughts that seemed justified of calling animal control or uh, <laughs> or having dog for dinner or whatever, <laughs> the way the mind would go nuts, um, I saw the mechanism real time as opposed to afterwards when I might have actually done something. I saw it real time. I am contracted here. And so you can't be the problem and therefore you can't be the solution. And I'm tenacious about that now. I often can't, I, sometimes I don't get further than that. Sometimes I sit a long time and like, you can't be the problem, although I'm sure you are. <laughs> and changing you can't be the solution, although I'm sure it is. <laughs> and that's as far as I can get right now. <laughs> But God, if you could just... <laughs> and luckily, I, I, I try to live with people who um, are also on the other end, uh, working their side of it, so that um, when we do get contracted, that we know we're contracted. And that's the, that's the spearhead. That's the bit that gets in there. And then you can begin trying to breathe into that, like, why does a fork in the sink drive me nuts? And then you can try to unpack it um, from there. Most people will just hit that and explode forward or collapse inward and to get it real time um, while your mind is contracted um, is where it starts. Thank you. We have time for one more. Um, 
I wanted some advice with the moments, uh, and they're infrequent, I suppose, but but they're traumatic when you uh, you actually discover that. Well, I guess the best way to put this is: yesterday afternoon, I went to a picnic high school reunion in the town that I went to high school in. And I don't go there very often. It's not very far away, but I don't go there there very often. And so I sort of live in the town of 40 years ago when I was going to high school. And, you know, (coughs) all of the big fields that used to be next to the high school are covered with houses. and, And so it's not the same town anymore. And there are the moments when you wake up and see that the map is fundamentally wrong mm-hmm. and that that you have to face you know that you have been living in unreality right <clears throat> and that's where um, where dukkha liberates you is that we um, uh, let's see dukkha is the distance between what is and how you'd rather things be. Um, and the severity of that dukkha is um, how much you're willing to wrestle between the two to make what, how you'd rather things be versus how they are. So how you wish things were is definitely the map. How things actually are is more of the actual truth. So your sadness um, the loss, the change. If it's just change, that's suffering along. That that thing's change is already hard enough to stay dynamic enough because our minds map things and you have to keep letting them go. That's hard. If the change is unpleasant, um, it seems to be a, uh, a negative outcome. That's another level. But both of those have to be um, dropped to come into alignment with the truth of things and move forward by how things are. So your neighborhood has changed. Time has passed. And maybe it's changed in ways that you don't like. You first have to kind of um, let go of how you wish things had been or that things have changed at all. That, that Both of those are hard. And then come into alignment with this is how things are now and um, sort of build a better map um, of how things are now and relate to it that way. I can tell by your furrowed brow that I missed. One of my problems is that um, is that if I build another map, that one is going to be wrong too. Yes, all maps are wrong. <laughs> all maps are not the truth. The map is never the terrain. Um, it's better to work off the actual terrain. It's better to kind of not go too far off into the conceptual understanding of what's happening and try to work directly with what is happening. But we, we all need some, to, to negotiate this level, um, you need some orientation to how things work. It's just, it's just necessary. But the closer you can work with um, having the map in one hand and a firm connection to, to the direct experience on the other, those two work well together. And the more you can do direct experience of how things are, what, what am I seeing? What am I feeling? What am I tasting, smelling? What thoughts are happening? 
that's it's better to put your weight there and use a little bit of conceptual understanding to help organize that on this relative level. That's usually where we find sort of the, the, the best, um, truest relationship to this relative level experience. And we do need to have a healthy relative level experience. Um, so um, I, I'm happy to stay a little longer if people have questions. Um, if you're afraid of crowds, then uh, I'll be here for a little bit. But I'll sort of um, bow to you all. Thank you so much for your attention. And um, enjoy the rest of this beautiful day.